0: Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Andrew Steele on Ageless. First, I wanted to let you know that if you enjoy this conversation or any of my author chats enough to want to buy the book, I've made it easy for you. Just click on the book title through the episode description wherever you're listening to this podcast, and it takes you to a link to buy the book through bookshop.org. Now, they don't pay me anything to say this, but I love bookshop.org because it connects readers with independent bookstores. And for the latest on this podcast, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. At Books on Pod. My name is Paul Nurse. I've written a book, What is Life? If
1: you read it, you will understand what biology is, what life is, and you will do it in five simple steps. And this is Books on Pod by Trey Elling.
0: Hello, readers. Andrew Steele received a Ph.D. in physics before changing careers to become a computational biologist for the Francis Crick Institute. These days, he spends his time as a science writer and presenter, and he just published his first book titled Ageless, The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old. Andrew,
1: thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm really well, thank you. It's a beautiful sunny day here in the UK for the first time in a while. So uh, yeah, having, having fun.
0: Glad to hear. It sounds like we're all starting to emerge from the deep winter into spring now. In order to provide some context for the rest of this conversation, what exactly is aging?
1: That is a fantastic question. I think the, the simplest definition of ageing is actually a statistical one rather than a biological one. And that's to say that you can look at how your risk of death changes depending on how old you are. So I'm in my 30s and that means my risk of death is probably somewhere around 1 in a 1,000 a year. And I like those odds. You know, imagine that continued into the indefinite future. I'd live into my 1,000 and 30s on average. So it's pretty clear that doesn't continue into the indefinite future. In fact, uh, as a human, your risk of death when you're an adult doubles roughly seven or every 7 or 8 years. And what that means is it can start out quite small, you know, one in a thousand when you're a young adult, pretty good odds, and it can get very big very quickly. So if you're lucky enough to make it into your 90s, your odds of not making your next birthday are somewhere in the region of one in six. So that's sort of life and death at the roll of a dice. And it's this synchronized exponential increase in the risk of death that really underlies the whole aging process. I think it's the simplest way to describe it. At
0: the same time, going back 25,000 years ago, which is prehistoric times, all the way up into 1800, the average lifespan of a human was actually pretty similar. Why have things gone up so much and really in such a surprisingly consistent manner since then, especially starting in 1840?
1: it's fascinating and as you say surprisingly almost suspiciously consistent um, we've had this increase in life expectancy since sort of 1840 1850 the top performing country in the world in terms of life expectancy so what you can see uh, you know in many ways is a sort of world class country when it comes to that uh, you know length of human lifespan has been increasing by 3 months every single year and that's you know been like clockwork we've had all kinds of incredible you know historical events happen during that time and yet every year TikTok tock 3 months and at first that was driven by a conquest Of uh, humanity's greatest ancient foe, which was infectious disease. So, you know, back whether you were uh, living in prehistoric times or whether you're living in a town or a city, you know, starting in the the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, a lot of the ways that you'd die basically came down to infection. You could get a chest infection when you were a young kid and you could, uh, you know, never make it into your teens, for example, or just a cut could kill you because, you know, these were the days before antibiotics. So, if that cut got infected, it could go on to take your life. So, as we improved hygiene, we developed vaccines, we developed antibiotics, we developed germ theory. So, we understood understood what made us ill that massively decreased the mortality in the early part of life mainly as kids but also as young adults as well and that started to push life expectancy up and up and actually in the last sort of say half a century we finally started to make some progress on life expectancy at the end of life so that's been things like cancer treatments and our ability to do heart surgery and all this huge amount of modern medicine, but also lifestyle changes, things like people giving up smoking, people exercising more, people having healthier diets. So it's been this huge, complicated mass of different changes that have been different at different times in history. And yet, as I say, every year, three months, TikTok.
0: Hmm. What is the three stage life? And how does this age of aging that we're currently in the midst of suggest a need to maybe rethink this structure?
1: Yeah, in my book, I make the case that we're living in this age of aging, and it's very much defined by this three-stage life. It's the idea that you spend, you know, maybe the first 20 years of your life, give or take in some kind of education. Then you go on to spend all those years in between the time from your education to the time you retire, basically working and often in a very similar job yeah you know, obviously you'll get promotions and you might change field a little bit but by and large we stick in one career throughout our whole lives and then when you reach the age of something like 65 you then retire you can take your pension and hopefully you know live out a few more years living off that pension and having a bit of fun and this is already starting to creak, because we've already got this ageing population all around the world, not just in the rich countries. And that means that we've got far fewer of those working age people who are able to support those older people. And also, because people's life expectancies have increased, we've left pension ages largely untouched. They're, you know, they're just starting to rise in various places around the world. We've got more and more commitments to look after that older generation. So even if life expectancy just carries on going up by three months a year, this is something we're really going to have to do something about. But what I'm predicting, and what I very much hope will happen, is that we can come up with treatments that will dramatically defer a lot of the illnesses of late life and could have a far more significant impact on healthy life expectancy. So when it comes to things like pensions, things like the amount we spend on healthcare, we're really gonna have to think quite serious about how we deal with those things.
0: It's now commonly thought that aging also evolved due to natural selections neglect. What is meant by this?
1: It's a very strange idea, isn't it, that ageing could evolve? So I think if anyone, you know, if you know something about natural selection, you know that it's survival of the fittest. That's how evolution works. It's that the um, animals pass on their characteristics and their genes and those that are fitter for their environment are able to reproduce more and pass on those genes more. And so that's how evolution happens. That's how organisms gradually become sort of better, better evolved for their situation with time. The confusing thing is that aging is a process of gradual decline. So why would natural selection encourage us to decline in this gradual way? It doesn't seem fitness optimizing at all. And the reason I call it in the book natural selections neglect is because once you've had babies, basically evolution doesn't care about you anymore. Because that means you've passed on those genes. You know, they're already out there in the world. Those kids of yours are able to reproduce themselves. And so anything that happens to your body, evolution just isn't that bothered. And that means that it can allow you to slowly degenerate, to become more susceptible to age-related diseases like cancer, heart disease, dementia. Um, Basically because you've already reproduced. And so it's just not bothered anymore.
0: Although you just briefly alluded to this, many people may not realize, but aging does affect life beyond our species, including plants and even single-celled organisms like yeast. How do the differences in mice and whales show the contrast in aging biology amongst different species?
1: That's a really fascinating example of uh, what I think is one of the best general trends in the evolution of aging. And that's to say that larger organisms tend to live longer than smaller ones. And actually, it's the exceptions that really demonstrate the, what's actually going on in the underlying way here. So let's have a quick think about mice and whales for starters. Mice, they're these tiny little animals. They're sort of scurrying around. They've got loads of natural predators, things like cats that can just, you know, turn up and eat them on any given day. They're also susceptible to lots of different diseases. Um, and frankly, they're just so small, they can die of exposure. A mouse in the wild can just get so cold that it literally freezes to death. And so the lifespan of a mouse in the wild is probably six months, maybe a year. And that means it's gotta very rapidly build up its body, pump out some kids, and allow the next generation to go out and you know, carry the torch. However, if you're a whale, the longest lived whales that we know about are a species called the bowhead whale, and they can live for we think over two centuries. And the reason is that they're very much at the other end of this evolutionary scale because they're huge, they're sort of monarchs of the ocean. They haven't got very many natural predators. They're not as susceptible to disease. They obviously can't die of exposure in the same way as a mouse can because they're just so much physically larger. And that means that they've got a greater evolutionary incentive to evolve defences against the common problems of ageing. So, you know, they're able to invest energy in their cells trying to prevent cancer from arising, or they're able to invest energy in keeping their arteries clear of ver- you know the various different things that can clog them up, and so on and so on. And so evolution has a much greater incentive in that case to basically reinforce their bodies against the ravages of time. And actually, as I said at the beginning of my answer, it's the exceptions that really prove this. So a- another great example of a long-lived mammal is a bat. And obviously the main difference between bats and mice is that bats 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 can fly, they're about the same size some of the species obviously therefore you know you might think similarly susceptible to predators apart from the fact they are living in the air where there are far fewer natural predators and what that means then is that evolution has had the time to iron out some of those kinks that happen to them as they age and some of the longest lived bats we think can live over 40 years so that's you know well over 10 times longer than a mouse even though they are a similar size so what's really going on here is that evolution tailors your lifespan depending on the amount of natural hazard in your environment and if that level's low you can live an incredibly long time
0: biogerontology is the science of aging. It began, or I guess it really gained in popularity in the 1990s, which is shocking to think about. But why is this field so relatively young in the world of science?
1: Yeah, it's incredible that the field uh, you whose know, you study is the subject of aging is so comparatively young in scientific terms. That's a wonderful way of putting it. I think the reason is that for decades and decades, scientists thought that aging was just a natural, inevitable, immutable process. And, you know, some of this even stems from uh, sort of the ideas in physics in the 19th century. People thought that just as machines that we could develop, you know, you, you create a new kind of steam engine it's eventually going to wear out without maintenance and that you know it's, it's going to rust it's going to run out of oil it's just going to fall apart and so you think if this happens to buildings it happens to steam engines it happens to all kinds of things in the physical world around us why shouldn't it just happen to animals as well but of course i sort of um contradicted myself out there in giving that answer and that's because you can oil a machine hmm. you can maintain it you can replace its parts and of course that's the fundamental piece that biologists miss because animals are constantly taking in energy from their environment they can use that to ward off their averages of time nonetheless it was still thought that perhaps ageing was something that even though it was this process of repair it was immutable and it's just so complicated far too hard for us to possibly get our heads around because evolution as the saying goes is cleverer than you are so if evolution hasn't been able to sort this out how on earth do we have a single hope but the reason for this uh, incredible birth of the field in the 90s or you know, arguably perhaps started off in the 1980s was because of these findings that a single gene change so changing a single uh, even a single letter in the ne- genetic code actually of a worm can extend its lifespan by a factor of about two and actually, subsequent work, I think the study came out in 2008, found that a mutation in a different letter of the DNA can extend their lifespans by a factor of 10. Now, obviously, worms aren't people. You know, It's not the case that we can just necessarily change a single letter of our genetic code and live to 1,000 years old. But what this shows is that this is not as complicated a process as you thought. This is something that can be addressed in the lab. You can make these single genetic changes. You can give you know, a single drug and change the lifespan of a worm or a mouse or you know, maybe even a human. So now it was something that could be studied. Biologists rushed into this exciting new field.
0: While biogerontology really didn't gain in popularity until the 1990s, you just mentioned the 1980s, uh, really starting to provide some clues. I think the first scientific hint of all of the endless possibilities in this world came about in the 1930s. Who was Clive McKay and what monumental study did he conduct at Cornell
1: during this time? And it's genuinely shocking to me that Clive's work didn't end up being spread throughout the world as this incredible feat of science, this insight into biology, because he showed for the first time in human history that ageing was a malleable process. And the way that he did that, he was investigating the effect of diet on rats. And he was looking at all kinds of different things. He was looking at how the rats developed, how large they eventually became. And he found that rats that were fed substantially less, well, first of all, they grew to a smaller size, which I guess you know is unsurprising, but it's good to have scientific confirmation that that's the case. But what he found was that these smaller rats were dramatically longer lived. They lived basically half as long again as rats that were fed a normal diet. And this is the birth of the idea of something called calorie restriction or dietary restriction. And, you know, this isn't just going on a diet. This is dramatically cutting back the amount of food you eat proponents of calorie restriction or these animals that are experimented on the lab they have their diets cut back by like 40 percent. this is a huge huge reduction in food intake but what they find is that these animals live for longer and not only that most crucially they live longer in good health that means they get less cancer they get less heart disease uh they often have better fur which is something you (laughs) see very commonly in the literature Mm. when people are talking about rat and mouse experiments i guess just because it's so obvious to the experimenters these rats and mice are calorie restricted they just look great and so what this shows is that Calorie restriction, cutting back the amount of food that these animals eat, is slowing down the ageing process globally. It's not just changing one aspect of how they die. It's actually slowing down that decrepitude that the mice would normally fall into. And therefore, this shows us that ageing is something that can be intervened in. it is malleable. And therefore, I think it's very much worth studying.
0: Lots of theories have been proposed and even disproven as to why we age. But two theories still resonate with you today, based on papers published in 2002 and 2013 that list seven and nine categories, respectively, that exist with aging. These lists inspired you to create your own lineup for the 10 traits of aging. They include DNA damage and mutations, trimmed telomeres, Protein problems, epigenetic alterations, accumulation of senescent cells, malfunctioning mitochondria, signal failure, changes in the microbiome, cellular exhaustion, and immune system malfunction. Now, we don't have time to get through uh, all 10 of those, but I did want to ask you some specifics on a couple. How do our successes in dealing with childhood cancers boost our understanding of DNA damage?
1: This is a really fascinating one. yeah, we've we've observed that um DNA damage we know causes cancer, basically. so what the the root cause of a cancer is that it's a cell that can divide an infinite number of times. It's a cell that accumulates mistakes in its DNA, so mutations.. Uh, basically. And what they can do is they can cause that cell to, it turns off genes that stop the cell from growing. It turns on genes that encourage the cell to grow. And if you get the wrong combination of those mutations, it can eventually, as I say, grow indefinitely, grow into a tumour, spread around your body, and that's how cancer goes on to kill you. So we've known for a long time that mutations are the sort of root cause of cancer. However, there's been a lot of debate about whether or not they actually constitute a cause of ageing. It's the sort of other side of the coin. And The success treating childhood cancer actually illustrates that there is some evidence that these changes to our DNA, the damage, the mutations that we pick up as we go about our everyday lives, aren't just something that underlies cancer. They're also something that underlie the more general deterioration as we get older. And that's because the ways that we treat cancer at the moment, they're often very aggressive. They're things like chemotherapy, radiotherapy. They, Although they're very successful, particularly in childhood cancers, actually, we've got an awful lot of success in removing the tumour by chemo or radiotherapy. There's a lot of collateral damage. These treatments cause a huge amount of DNA damage, a huge number of mutations in the cells, often in the direct vicinity of the cancer that's being treated. And what you find is that these poor kids, thankfully, they can survive the childhood cancer and they can live for decades and decades longer. But they seem to undergo a lot of the things that we associate with ageing at a significantly accelerated rate so they can start getting heart disease in their 50s you know most of us if we live a healthy life can expect not to get that until our 60s or 70s or something like that so it just seems to bring everything forward and although we don't necessarily know the exact mechanisms in every case because understanding you know our genetic code is an incredibly complicated thing it's this three billion letter book of instructions that describes how the human body works it's nonetheless becoming increasingly clear that mistakes in that instruction manual don't just cause cancer they also accelerate the aging process as a whole
0: Telomeres are a big buzzword among anti-aging enthusiasts right now. What are telomeres and what is
1: popular aging science getting wrong with them currently? Telomeres are these protective caps on the ends of our DNA. They're these sequences of thousands or even tens of thousands of repeated uh, sections that are all just six DNA letters long. And their function is uh, to correct a surprisingly ridiculous mistake that evolution has made when it's designed the insides of our cells. When your cells divide, all of the DNA in them has to be replicated so there's a copy in both of the daughter cells. But the problem is that the enzyme that we have that can replicate DNA can't quite make it all the way to the end of the DNA molecule, which means that inevitably a tiny amount gets chopped off each time. And uh, the way that evolution has decided to solve this problem isn't to make a better enzyme that can actually make it all the way to the end of the DNA. It creates these uh, redundant sections, these telomeres, at the end of each of these chromosomes. And that means that when a tiny bit of this thousands and thousands of repeated bases is chopped off, it's not important. It's not a crucial gene that's absolutely central to the function of the cell, so it can be chopped off without any significant consequence. As you can uh, sort of imagine from the way I've just described this, it's a somewhat temporary reprieve from this problem, because eventually, over the years, your cells divide, your DNA gets replicated, and your telomeres get shorter and shorter. And we've actually observed that that is something that happens in humans. It's relevant over our lifespans. And people with shorter telomeres seem to live less long, and they also seem to be more susceptible to a lot of different age-related diseases. And so back in uh, the 90s, when this, the, the excitement around telomeres was first beginning to build, the reason for that was because of the discovery of an enzyme called telomerase. What this enzyme can do is it can add extra repeated regions onto the end of those telomeres. And that means you, know, you can build, up, build back up these telomeres that are being shortened by ageing. And so everyone thought, wow, this is an immortality enzyme the problem is that, you know, in the most simplistic application of this, what you can do is you can give mice an extra copy of the telomerase gene. And that means they've got this telomerase constantly buzzing around in their cells, increasing the length of their telomeres. But unfortunately, what you find when that happens is that the mice become much, much more susceptible to cancer. I've already mentioned that uh, cancer is this disease that's caused by cells that divide an infinite number of times um, and what you find with telomerase is that basically it's pre-ticking a box on cancer's list cancer's got to find a way to extend those telomeres and allow the cells to keep on dividing if you give it telomerase for free that's basically a bonus it makes cancer more likely So that meant that the enzyme got written off, people just thought, oh, you know, it was touted as this immortality pill, but actually it's turned out to be something that just causes cancer. And so this cynical narrative really took over in the early 2000s. But thankfully, what we found is that it's not quite as simple as that. There have been experiments since that have shown that if you give telomerase, the gene that extends the telomeres, in combination with other genes in mice that can suppress the cancer that might result from that, they actually live longer, and they do so with no increased chance of cancer. And we've also found that if instead of giving the telomerase in a way that's constantly active, so it's constantly... Constantly extending those telomeres and as I said like pre-ticking a box on cancer's list then you just temporarily activate it extend the telomeres a little bit but then that uh, telomerase turns off again that can also expand extend life and make the mice healthier too so I think there's going to be a resurgence in the idea of telomeres but it's just not quite as simple as the original story that we uh, thought about them seemed to suggest
0: you break down the treatment of aging into four different categories simply put removing bad stuff replacing bad stuff repairing bad stuff and reprogramming bad stuff. And it's with removing of the bad stuff that we revisit dietary restriction now. I have heard of drugs that people are taking that really essentially mimic dietary restriction, things like rapamycin and also the popular diabetes drug metformin. I hadn't heard of spermidine before though. What is spermidine? How is it discovered and what does it do?
1: I absolutely love the story of the discovery of spermidine, one of the pioneers of microscopy. I'm going to butcher his name, so I won't try and pronounce it. <laughs> but he, he, he was a Dutch scientist, and he, was, he basically had one of the world's first microscopes. So he was just looking at everything. And as a man with one of the world's first microscopes, I mean, I guess we'd all go there. He started looking at his own semen under the microscope. And obviously, that meant that he discovered the sperm cell. But he also discovered some of the stuff that uh, exists in our semen. He managed to crystallize something out of the semen. He didn't know at the time what it was. But he called this stuff spermidine. And what we've since found is it appears to have some kind of effect on lifespan and health span. So there are some suggestive animal experiments that have shown that if you give spermidine, uh, it can improve their health, it can improve how long they live. And there's also again some suggestive human experiments that show that the people who get the most spermidine in their diet. But, so these, these scientists basically looked back at all the different things that people ate and said, you know, these certain things have more spermidine. And it. it's often things like mushrooms. There, are, there's a list of foods that you can find that have a relatively high spermidine content. Hmm. People who ate more of those things tended to live longer in good health. All of these things are suggestive. None of it's conclusive because the problem with these observational studies is you know there might just be something systematically different about people who love mushrooms that reflects beyond their dietary choices. However, it seems that there are drugs like spermidine, these other ones you mentioned, rapamycin, metformin, that can emulate the effects of eating less, but without having to go on these crash diets. And that's something I'm really excited about for the future of aging treatment.
0: I do have to admit that hearing taking a diabetes drug will help reverse aging. It does cause me to pause. Do these drugs come with some obvious side effects if you do? try to take them to maybe slow the aging clock?
1: Some of them do and some of them less so. And I think metformin is actually a really good example of a drug that has very few side effects. When you start taking it, sometimes people get a very upset tummy basically. But if that side effect doesn't happen for you, then basically we know it's got a very good safety profile. Mm. In the UK, we've been prescribing metformin for diabetes since the 1950s. And I think in the US, there are literally... Tens of millions of prescriptions for metformin written every year, so it's an incredibly widely used drug. We're very familiar with how it works, and in fact, that's why metformin has been chosen as the first drug that's actually going to be trialed for the purpose of slowing down the aging process. There's a trial in the U.S. called TAME, which is a uh, short for Targeting Aging with Metformin, and the idea is they're going to give this drug to a bunch of people over the age of 60. They're going to give half of the people in the trial the drug, half of them a placebo, so a sugar pill that doesn't really do anything, and they're going to see if the people who are taking the real metformin live longer or if they fail to get a panel of age-related diseases, things like cancer, things like heart disease, things like diabetes and so on. And what they're hoping therefore is that this is a drug that's got very minimal side effects, but can extend lifespan and health span with any luck. So fingers crossed for that one. Other drugs do have more side effects, but it's always just a case of being able to trade these things off one against another. It might be that the side effects are tolerable for the particular health benefit, or it might be that we can find, these drugs often provide inspiration. You find a mechanism that works, but you know, has, has side effects that we can't tolerate, but perhaps you can refine that drug, find a slightly different but related molecule that can and have you know more of the good and less of the bad
0: we age in part because our immune system becomes less reliable there are four categories of replacement therapy to try and help with this stem cell therapy immune system therapy microbiome therapy and cellular protein therapy what is differentiation and why is differentiation a key to stem cells anti-aging effects
1: so stem cell therapy is a term that's often uh, misunderstood, I think, because I think when it's sort of thrown around in the press or p- perhaps by a certain slightly dubious medical clinics that are trying to basically get people to pay large amounts of money for stem cell treatments, the implication is that it's the stem cells themselves that are exciting. They're somehow a you know, magical kind of cell that's going to infuse your body with life or get rid of some particular disease. But actually, differentiation really is the key. And that's because all a stem cell is, it's a cell that can become multiple different kinds of other cell. So in the simplest case... You can get a stem cell that can just become one other type of cell. That means when it divides, it can either form two stem cells or it can form a stem cell and one of what's called a differentiated cell a cell actually does work in your body and that's why this idea about stem cell therapy doesn't really make sense because what we really want isn't the stem cells that have this power to become other kinds of cell what we want is working you know heart muscle cells or insulin producing cells that can help produce insulin and conquer diabetes or you know we want the neurons in the brain that are lost in parkinson's disease to be replaced with stem cell therapy not because we care about the stem cells themselves but because we care about the cells that they can become and that's what's. crucial when you're trying to replace things that are lost in the process of aging. You don't necessarily want to inject the stem cells. What you want to do is use those stem cells to create more of the actual working body cells that can then go on to uh, improve your health in old age.
0: Teratomas are a potential side effect of humans injecting a specific type of stem cell. What are teratomas and how common are they?
1: they are an absolutely fascinating thing and, and thankfully, I, I think mercifully very rare hmm. uh, they're a type of tumour that's caused by what's called a pluripotent stem cell and a pluripotent stem cell is a, is a particularly special kind of stem cell that can become basically any cell in the entire body These are the kinds of stem cells that you can find very, very early in the process of embryonic development. So in the few days after the sperm meets the egg in the process of making a baby, then those first few cells are pluripotent because they can become any part of the entire baby's body. But the problem is that if you were to find a pluripotent stem cell in an adult human, The careful, choreographed sequence of signals that allow a cell in a developing baby to know what it needs to become aren't present in that adult human. And so that means that you can get these cells just differentiating at random, basically. They're they're just guessing, they've got nothing to go on. And so you can get these absolutely incredible, grotesque tumors called teratomas. And these are tumors that are made up of loads of different, sort of a mangle of different body parts. You can get whole, uh, sort of malformed teeth, you can get hair, you can get bits of eyes growing in these things. As I say, they're rare but because they are so grotesque so horrible so visually fascinating i guess if you've got that sort of mindset they were collector's items to victorian medics so i really recommend if you ever visit an anatomical museum to try and seek out one of these teratomas you can find them floating in jars of formaldehyde and they are really grisly and gruesome but they've got a sort of yeah morbid fascination as i say if you're not too squeamish really worth checking out
0: Only slightly less squirm-inducing is this next question. What do castrated European opera singers of the 18th century have to do with their understanding on improving the immune system to cure aging?
1: Absolutely incredible research has been done looking back at these people who've been castrated in history because obviously it isn't something that we do very much in the modern world but what was done in the past is that you know young boys testicles would be removed and the idea in the case of the opera singers was actually to try and uh, stop their voices breaking in puberty and then that would mean they had a very special uh, particular tone of their voice that was much sought after in uh, that particular period in European history and by looking at this population and others we've been trying to investigate what happens when you remove someone's testicles and you remove this sort of sex hormone stimulation and what's been found and actually the most striking results aren't from the castrati singers in europe but from some eunuchs in the korean court the court of the uh, korean emperors back several hundred years ago they found that people or obviously men who've had their testicles removed can live dramatically longer lifespans there are examples of these korean eunuchs making it into their hundreds even though there are only a handful of these eunuchs uh, servicing the korean court nonetheless several of them made it to beyond the age of 100 and you've got to remember that this is back at a time when life expectancy in the general population was probably somewhere in the region of 30 or 40 years old. So this really is absolutely astonishing longevity. and. Obviously, we can't go back and give them a thorough sort of immune test, um, immune system test, to work out whether that was a huge contributing factor. But there's good reason to believe that it was, because by removing the testicles, and in fact potentially by removing the ovaries, so you know the, the equivalent of castration in women, you can slow the decline of a particular part of the immune system called the thymus. And so we think that that could potentially be something that helped them resist infection and even help them resist cancer, and potentially therefore was a contributor to their longer lives.
0: Obviously, no sane person is going to castrate themselves for a few extra years. Are there any alternative treatments that are starting to arise that look like they may be able to mimic that effect in the thymus?
1: Thankfully, there are. This is something that it's a real head scratcher because what's bizarre about castration, I, I'm obviously not on the I'm not on the fence about this. I do not want to get castrated. <laughs> but it is crazy that there is a treatment out there that you could do. You know, it's, it's not beyond the realms of medical science at all. This is something that all men listening to this, and if it were the case that you could definitely tell me that I'd be gaining a huge amount of additional life, it would be very, very hard to refuse. It's such, it's such a strange contradiction. But anyway, thankfully, the good news is that we don't have to turn this question over too much in our heads because hopefully we're going to come up with ways to simulate this without having to have your test removed uh, surgically and that's because we can do all kinds of things to regenerate this organ the thymus so there are already trials of uh, combination therapy involving various hormones and drugs that can apparently rejuvenate the thymus and improve the performance of the immune system but we've also got other more adventurous ideas things like a gene therapy that you can use to encourage the thymus to develop back again and sort of revert it to a more youthful state and we've also got ideas for stem cell therapies and again obviously we're not injecting the stem cells themselves we're injecting the thymic cells the cells of the thymus that you can generate from those stem cells to rejuvenate this organ and hopefully therefore rejuvenate the immune performance that's associated with
0: by now, a lot of people are aware of the microbiome in our gut. The goal of the microbiome is a diverse, balanced gut full of beneficial bacteria. Are prebiotics and probiotics generally helpful in making sure to maintain this balance?
1: I very much hope they will be at some point in the not too distant future, but I think today we just haven't got the solid evidence that we need. You mentioned earlier that I referred to these sort of couple of papers in my book as the sort of foundations, these these so-called hallmarks of ageing. And I actually added the microbiome. It's in neither of them. And that's because the science on this is just moving so, so fast. It's something that's really emerged just in the last few years. And because it's moving so fast, I'm very confident that we are going to understand what it is about, you know, an old healthy microbiome, an old unhealthy microbiome, a youthful microbiome, you know, what exactly it is, which bacteria, do we need more of? And therefore, how should we stimulate as the bacteria to grow and you know encourage them to be the dominant bacteria in our microbiome? But as of right now, I don't think we've got the evidence to say that the various probiotics and prebiotics that are on the market at the moment are necessarily beneficial. But just, you know, watch this space. This is something that's moving very, very quickly.
0: And although its name may cause people to be taken aback just a bit, full microbiome transplants are a reality for humans right now via fecal transplants. What exactly are fecal transplants and what sort of conditions have they shown to be able to help with?
1: Yeah, so the idea is that you basically transplant the uh, microbiome, so the the guts, the bacteria, the viruses, the fungi that live in somebody's gut from a healthy person to somebody who's unwell. And we've shown in animals actually that this can reverse the ageing process. So we've had trials in a little thing called a killifish, where you can clear out the microbiome in the older fish, give them the microbiome of a younger fish, and they basically live a bit longer and seem to dart about the tank a bit more. It's hard to do like a detailed physical on a fish, it's hard to obviously give it a questionnaire and ask it how it's feeling. But what we can do is see that they appear to exhibit more youthful behaviour at least. In humans, this isn't being used as an anti-aging treatment yet. But what we can do is we can use it to treat various often infections, so things like uh, there's an infection called C. diff, which is a horrible uh, bowel infection. And what you can do is give someone a microbiome transplant. There are two ways you can do it. You can either do it from um, the mouth end by having a sort of little capsule of freeze-dried faecal matter. Sounds absolutely delightful, doesn't it? And that goes down into your guts and hopefully repopulates it with some friendlier microbes. Or you can do it from the other end, shall we say? And obviously, both of those sound you know, fairly unpleasant. But if it's something that can you know cure a disease that you're suffering from or potentially slow down your aging. It's definitely something I'd give a bit more thought.
0: Well, hey, it beats the hell out of, I think they called it yellow tea back in the 17 and 1800s, where doctors were essentially steeping feces and then having their patients drink that tea.
1: There have been some absolutely bizarre and horrible experiments in the history of medicine, haven't there? And I think particularly the field of anti-aging medicine has been marred by these absolutely crazy ideas. The worst one I read about was one where people were, and this was as recently, I think as the 1920s, surgically implanting monkey testicles into people in the belief that that would extend life. And you know, before we started to have a proper understanding of this stuff, there have been some really egregious quacks.
0: <laughs> Slightly less disturbing than sewing monkey testicles into humans is something called called heterochronic parabiosis. What exactly is this, and how is it helping us to learn how to reverse aging with the blood?
1: This is something that, as you say, it's only slightly less grim, but the idea is that you get an old mouse and a young mouse, and you cut them open on the sides, and you sew them together. And as that wound heals, or that, that pair of wounds heals, it does so in such a way that the mice end up sharing a blood supply. And the heterochronic bit is because these mice, uh, it's just from uh, the Latin or Greek, I don't know, I didn't have a classical education, but they um, it basically means different ages. So you get an old mouse, you get a young mouse, and you sew them together. And what you find is that the old mouse effectively gets biologically younger in some respects. It's able to heal more quickly, its uh, cognitive performance improves slightly. Unfortunately, the reverse is true for the young mouse. It appears to get biologically older. The strain of having to support this older body uh, attached to it seems to have a negative effect on its health. But what this strongly suggests is that there are signalling factors. There are things that are carried in our blood. These could be chemicals. They could be cells, whatever it is, that are making effectively characterise young animals and make it harder for old animals. And if we could understand what those factors are, then we could potentially come up with ways to improve the levels of the beneficial factors in older animals, perhaps scrub out some of the disbeneficial factors and thereby improve the health and the longevity of, you know, human beings as well.
0: Silicon Valley billionaires are thought of as modern vampires. But how much good is it doing a Peter Thiel to replace his blood with that of a young, virile employee?
1: Uh, I think that unfortunately this got a lot of press and you can see why because the idea of heterochronic parabiosis, the idea of young blood, it really does play into this sort of centuries old vampire folklore. And you can see how it would make sense to transfuse a young person's blood into an older person. But unfortunately the evidence just isn't there. And what really depresses me is that the real craze for this started with the existence of a company called Ambrosia, which I think came up in around 2015, 2016 time. But actually in 2014 this idea had already been debunked. Because this experiment had been done where they'd got the young blood plasma from young mice and injected it into old mice. And they showed that it didn't have any particular health benefit. It didn't extend the lifespan of the old mice. So that really is the clinching experiment that shows it's not as simple as just transferring plasma. And actually, you know, if you think about it, it's obvious with hindsight because when you sew two mice together, they're sharing an awful lot more than just a blood supply because the young mouse, it's got a fantastic young circulatory system. It's got great young lungs, great young heart, which means that perhaps the older mouse is getting better oxygenated blood into its system. It's got a young liver and young kidneys that can scrub the toxins from those blood. So it's really providing a lot more support than just simply transferring, you know, the liquid part of blood.
0: Our bodies produce antioxidants that minimize damage done by free radicals, which are produced by mitochondria reactions. Considering antioxidants are a buzzword in health food marketing, does increasing antioxidant levels via dietary or pharmaceutical means have a positive impact on healthspan and or lifespan?
1: The sad news is that no and in fact one of the bits of health advice in my book is don't bother with supplements and because yeah. the reason for that is exactly this that you know a lot of supplements that we take are antioxidant supplements um and what they their intention is is to mop up these free radicals I should caveat that by saying, you know, if you have spoken to your doctor and you're short of a particular vitamin or mineral, it can be well worth supplementing it to make sure that you get up to the correct level of that. But for most people who are in generally good health, they're not very useful at all. And the reason for that is that we've learned basically that these reactive oxygen species, these free radicals, they aren't just the biochemical berserkers, you know, smashing around, damaging our insides that we once thought they were. They are able to damage things like our DNA, damage our proteins, and thereby you know, damage crucial biological molecules. But unsurprisingly, given that life has been dealing with free radicals for billions of years we've come up with ways to mitigate them we have our own natural antioxidant enzymes that can clean these things up and our cells actually use these free radicals to communicate with each other to communicate within the cell and i think the coolest thing they use them for is actually they can immune cells can bombard invading bacteria with free radicals in order to damage them you know in order to basically kill them off so by taking a huge huge amount of vitamin supplements what you could potentially be doing well if you take a small amount and what that will do is uh, dampen down the number of free radicals that exist and therefore your body might dampen down its own anti-free radical enzymes in order to compensate. And if you were to take even more, then what you might find is that you reduce the number of free radicals below the level at which it's necessary and actually harm your health. Mm. So unfortunately, although this was a very long running theory as to why we age, I think that um, more modern science has basically overturned that idea.
0: An age-old debate in science, and let's be honest, beyond, is nature versus nurture. How much do our genes determine how long we live, Andrew?
1: This is something that I think recent research has turned up some very surprising results. So the fact is that for most of us, nature doesn't seem to play a huge amount of a role in the sense that our inherited component of our longevity for most people is, depending on the study that you read, somewhere between maybe 5 and 20%. And what that means is that somewhere between 80 and 95% of how long you live is determined by a combination of lifestyle and luck. And those two things can be quite hard to disentangle. But the genetic component is surprisingly small. The only place where this doesn't seem to hold is in people who live exceptionally long lives. So if you've got um, a parent or a grandparent who made it over the age of 100 then that is time to start sitting up and take notice because it seems in these incredibly long-lived populations then there is a much larger genetic component to longevity. So you can luck out, but basically for the rest of us, it's all to play for.
0: We talked about genetic mutations and damage a bit earlier on. I am somewhat obsessed with the CRISPR gene editing technology and just the advances that have been made over the last 10 plus years now. Obviously, a Nobel Peace Prize is being given out this year to those who were really the trailblazers with this CRISPR technology. Can CRISPR editing potentially help with mutated or damaged DNA?
1: I think that CRISPR itself isn't going to be directly helpful in terms of human therapies. I mean, it is is for some. Let's let's be clear. There are already actually hundreds of CRISPR-based therapies in human trials. But this is often to correct a defect in genetics rather than to optimise the genes that we have. So if you've got a particular single gene problem, then CRISPR can go in and turn off the defective gene and basically cure your condition. And that's what a lot of these therapies are for. However, I think what CRISPR has really done is it's unlocked a whole new series of experiments in lab biology because it's just so much simpler than previous gene editing techniques and so much more precise device you can say, this is a particular part of the genome that I want you to go in and disable that exact gene at this exact point. And that's something that we really haven't been able to do in the lab before. So that's much, much more exciting as a method. And it means things are much cheaper, they're much quicker to happen in the lab. I think the other thing to say is that although CRISPR itself might not be something that massively impacts on longevity in terms of medicine, what we will find is that techniques that are based on CRISPR might have some significant impact. So we can take the same precision that CRISPR has to disable a gene, and rather than disabling that gene, we can do something like swap a particular DNA letter for another. And there are some real low-hanging fruit here. One of the first papers looking at the so-called base editing, what it did was they swapped out a gene called APOE. And this is a gene, APOE, two or APOE3 sort of healthier versions of this gene. And APOE4, unfortunately, gives you a predisposition to things like heart disease and dementia. And APOE2 and 3 are overrepresented in centenarians, so people who make it to the age of 100. And what's really cool about these particular variations in this gene, they're called genetic variants, is that they only differ from one another by a single DNA letter. So it's possible that we could use base editing, which, as I say, is based on CRISPR to go in, find this exact point in the genome, swap those letters, you know, effectively change APOE4 into APOE3 or APOE3 into APOE2 and improve your health, reduce your chance of dementia, reduce your chance of heart disease. So there's very much potential for this stuff to happen in the future.
0: What is the epigenetic clock? And have research and experimentation found ways to turn this clock back?
1: The epigenetic clock is, I think, a real crystallization of an intuition that a lot of us probably have, which is the idea that your biological age and your chronological age aren't necessarily aligned. That's to say that you can be biologically older than the number of candles on your birthday cake, or in fact, of course, you can be biologically younger. And what the epigenetic clock does is it looks at the epigenetic marks, these chemicals basically that are found all over your DNA, and their primary purpose is to turn different genes on and off. So the easiest way to understand this is that every single cell in your body contains basically the same two metres of DNA, this incredibly long genetic instruction manual. But, We've got heart cells, we've got brain cells, we've got liver cells, we've got intestine cells. We've got hundreds of different types of cells all around our body which all look very different, they do very different jobs in spite of having the same instruction manual. So clearly it's very important that particular genes are turned off that aren't needed in cells uh, that are performing a particular function and other genes are turned on or they're turned on partially, they're turned on completely and so on and so on. So this control is performed by what's called the epigenome. Epi because it sits above our genome, our DNA. And what scientists have found is that if you look at how someone's epigenetics and in particular a mark called methylation, changes as you go through your life you can look at these marks and you can determine how old someone is with incredible precision down to just a few years and not only that but actually there's a more sort of morbid side to this which is that if your epigenetic age is advanced compared to your biological age this is known as epigenetic age acceleration and it suggests that you're more likely to get age-related diseases and you're more likely to die sooner Obviously, thankfully, the converse is also true. You can be epigenetically younger than your chronological age as well. And so that's something that's given us this incredible window, the ability to you know, look at how biologically old someone is just by doing effectively a simple test on their epigenome. And that means that hopefully we'll be able to substantially speed up research into aging because we'll, rather than just giving some people a drug like has been done in the TAME trial then leaving them for five years and seeing if they you know, get ill or they die, what we could do instead is measure their epigenetic age first, give them a drug, then get them to come back you know, a few weeks or a month later and see if their epigenetic clock has changed and that means the experiments can be done much more quickly with fewer participants therefore far more cheaply and it means we can try out a lot more of these ideas in aging a lot quicker hopefully.
0: Hopefully anyone who reads this book understands that even if aging isn't curable right now, it is malleable. There are five factors that currently are acknowledged by most everybody as having a major impact on lifespan and health span. Cigarette smoking, body weight, alcohol consumption, exercise and diet. You utilize these as part of your 11 bits of advice to stave off aging. For instance, don't eat too much. Why does a person who is even a slight bit overweight run the risk of accelerating aging?
1: This is down to a process called inflammation and uh, in youth inflammation. And in fact, even in old age, inflammation is a really important thing. It's the way that our body responds to threats. It responds to diseases. It's basically a molecular combination of distress flares. It's uh, the way that a part of your body can sound the alarm. So say you get a cut, Uh, what will happen is that the cells around that region where you've got that cut will give out these inflammatory distress flares, and then immune cells will rush from all around your body to come and sort the problem out. They'll start the process of wound healing, they'll get rid of any invading bacteria that might be trying to take advantage of that, uh, you know, breaching your defences, and so on and so on. And this is what we call acute inflammation. It's inflammation that's very compressed in the time that it works for. It turns on, it solves the problem, and then it turns off nice and cleanly again once the problem's been fixed. However, something that we observe in people as they age is a process called chronic inflammation. This is inflammation that doesn't just you know, start and stop when it's needed. It's a constant low-level sort of hum of paranoia from your immune system. And ironically, even though your immune system is more paranoid, that means it actually gets less effective at many of its tasks. And that's something that can go on to accelerate the aging process. Now, what goes on if you're overweight is that your fat cells can enter an inflammatory state. They can start giving out these inflammatory molecules and that can contribute to this process of chronic inflammation. And therefore, being overweight effectively accelerates the aging process. And that's what I found really exciting about this health advice, because some of it, as you say, it's, it's surprisingly well known. You know, we all know that we shouldn't be smoking, we shouldn't drink too much, we should try and you know maintain a healthy body weight and so on and so on. But when you understand the nitty gritty biology behind this stuff, it really makes these, uh, you know, seemingly everyday bits of health advice that much more compelling.
0: And that leads perfectly into my next question. We all understand what fat is in terms of the superficial fat that we see on somebody who is overweight or obese, but there is a much worse version of fat. What is visceral fat and why is it so bad?
1: This is uh, looking at the different places the fat can form, basically. So the, the, the two broad categories of fat are so-called subcutaneous fat, which is just fat that's uh, under the skin, and visceral fat, which is the fat that's between our organs. So that's the difference between uh, subcutaneous fat often gives you quite a big bum, whereas visceral fat, because it's between the organs in your abdomen, will give you a fat belly. And it's this visceral fat that seems to give out far more of these inflammatory molecules. So it seems to be a far greater driver of the aging process than subcutaneous fat. Now, having said that, the fact is that most of us, you know, when we eat, we can't choose where a particular burger is laid down in fat or when we exercise we can't choose which particular part of our body the fat gets removed from so the health advice remains the same but what this means is that we understand how it is that the fat is driving the aging process and if you've got a fat belly particularly that's time to try and you know rein in your diet try and improve your exercise regime a little bit and you know shed some of those pounds
0: you also encourage people to get some exercise what does statistics show us about exercise and its impact on our health
1: It's incredibly, incredibly good for you, the the sort of joke amongst doctors is that if exercise were a pill everyone would be lining up to take it hmm. but the fact is that, that because it requires a bit more effort because it can often just you know genuinely be hard to squeeze into our busy modern lives then people aren't so willing to t- sort of uh, you know I, I say take it it's not a pill they aren't you know they aren't so willing to engage in it or aren't so able to engage in it but the fact is that even a very small amount of exercise can have dramatic impacts on your health you know if you're someone who's completely sedentary even taking a, a 10 minute brisk walk a day can have a huge impact on your life expectancy and if you can ramp that up to something like 30 minutes of moderate exercise every day, then you can really start making a difference. You can massively reduce your chance of death. So this is something that's really worth all of us trying to do. And actually what's most exciting about these statistics is that they show that the people who make the first small steps away from being completely sedentary are the ones who gain the most benefit. So it's not your marathon runner who goes from running an hour a day to an hour and 10 minutes a day. That's probably unlikely to have a significant impact on their health. In fact, it might even be somewhat negative at those incredibly high levels of exercise. But for most of us who aren't doing a huge amount, then even Even making those few first small steps can have a huge effect on our health.
0: Well, some of the tips that you offer are on the obvious tilt, as you just mentioned, diet, exercise, getting the right amount of sleep. I was a little bit surprised to see uh, taking care of oral hygiene amongst your tips. Why is a person taking care of his or her teeth so important to the process of aging?
1: That was definitely the bit of health advice that surprised me the most. And I think the converse to what I said earlier, you know, not, not only does this underline some of the more basic health advice that I think a lot of people already know, it also shows you, you know, through the lens of ageing science, you can identify bits of health advice that you wouldn't expect uh, to be able to have an impact on your health. And actually, toothbrushing is, is a really, really good example of that. The mechanism by which it's thought to act is actually the same as the mechanism we think that visceral fat acts to accelerate your ageing, which is this idea of chronic inflammation. So this was first observed back in the 90s, that people with poor oral health seem to have uh, worse outcomes in terms of heart disease. And actually we've sort of doubled down on that recently. And it seems to also potentially have an impact on dementia as well, which is also known to be driven by inflammation. And what's going on is that when you've got tooth decay, when you've got gum disease, there's a constant battle going on inside your mouth between your immune system and the bacteria in your gums or your teeth. And as everyone knows, because we have to visit the dentist, this isn't a battle that your immune system can win, basically. It's going to be this constant, ongoing, low-level skirmish. And what does a constant, ongoing, low-level skirmish with your immune system sound like? Well, it sounds like chronic inflammation. It's basically driving this inflammatory process. And that's thought to be the mechanism by which um, having poor oral hygiene can accelerate your aging, or conversely, keeping your teeth good and clean making sure you floss every day and that sort of thing can not just reduce your dental bills but also potentially improve how long you live as well
0: you mentioned earlier discouraging people to take supplements are there any
1: exceptions to this rule I don't think there are, to be honest. The one supplement that I'm taking at the moment is vitamin D. And the reason for that is there's been all this publicity around whether it can possibly affect COVID. Mm-hmm. But what's a very strange thing, I'm approaching this in a very sort of scientific probabilistic way. I actually don't think vitamin D is very likely to work against coronavirus in, in terms of, you know, either preventing infection or reducing the risk of severe disease. However, we do know that vitamin D has very little effect. In fact, I, I sort of flirted with it. I was on and off taking it for a few years. And ultimately I came down deciding it's not really worth it because it doesn't have any effect on lifespan. It doesn't have any effect on sort of the best measure, which is called all cause mortality. So that's dying from any particular disease or cause. However, the sort of flip side of that is because it doesn't affect all cause mortality, it's probably not really doing me any harm. And so even though I don't think it will have an effect on coronavirus, I'm taking a small vitamin D tablet every day just to be on the safe side in the hope that it might do something.
0: All right, that's noted. And the 11th and final piece of advice is to be a woman, though perhaps written slightly tongue in cheek. Why is this notable?
1: It's fascinating, and it's something that we really haven't teased apart. I think the the global average, and I think this is true in the U.S. as well, actually, is that the life expectancy difference between men and women is quite astonishingly five years. So if you're a woman, you can expect to live five years longer than if you're a man. And it's really, really hard to disentangle because there are so many social and biological factors that could go into this. The obvious social ones are men are more risk-taking, they drink more, they smoke more, they sometimes have uh, riskier or sort of uh, more intense, physically intense employment. So those could be certain things that could reduce male life expectancy. But we also know that there are uh, biological differences between men and women. And one of the most obvious ones is that, you know, you'll know from high school biology that most women have an XX chromosome and most men have an XY chromosome. And what this designation really hides is the fact that the Y chromosome is tiny. It's much, much smaller than the X. It's got far fewer genes. And that means that when you're a woman, you effectively have a backup of a lot of important genes. When you're a man, if your X chromosome from your mother has a problem with a particular gene or, you know, that gene doesn't work in the way it's supposed to, your Y chromosome may well not have a backup of that gene. And what that means is that by a variety of tiny little um, genetic problems that can ultimately conspire to reduce the lifespan of men compared to that of women.
0: You write that the biggest key in finding a cure for aging in modern times is to raise public and political awareness to what is being researched and understood, as well as what may be possible in the coming decades or even years. Awareness will lead to funding. If you could change one thing about the public perception of aging research right now or maybe change one policy, what would that be?
1: I think the most important sort of general thing in terms of public perception, and obviously, you know, we know the public and uh, politicians and policymakers, all these people often have very similar levels of understanding of aging biology, which is to say not very much. And what I'd like to do is encourage people to really look into this science. That's why I wrote this book, because I wanted to make people understand that aging is malleable. It's something that we can do something about. And this isn't some sort of wacky science fiction idea. The idea is that, you know, we can come up with treatments, we can come up with medication, we can come up with various other kinds of medicine that can slow and reverse the ageing process. And it could have this absolutely enormous impact from a social perspective, from an economic one. I characterise ageing in the book as the world's largest humanitarian crisis. And that's because I believe it's the single greatest cause of death and suffering globally. I talked at the very beginning of our interview about this idea that our mortality doubles every seven or eight years. And if you look at that compared with the life expectancy around the world, which is actually higher than a lot of people expect, global life expectancy now is about 72.6 years in 2019, which is the last year that we have data for. And that's, I think, older than a lot of people expect. And that means that that uh, mortality rate doubling is, has a lot of time to act. And you know, most people in most countries are living long enough to experience the effects of aging. So if you do the maths, it works out that of the 150,000 people who die every day on planet Earth, over 100,000 of them die because of aging, because of diseases like cancer and heart disease and dementia that the aging process effectively causes. And so I think the single most important quest in modern medicine is to take our understanding of the aging process and try and defer those diseases and that would you know impact on these two thirds of deaths it would impact on the decades of suffering that comes before that because you know heart disease doesn't just kill you instantly it gradually erodes your ability to exercise your ability to play with your grandkids your ability to get about the house and you know do your everyday tasks all of these things gradually eat away at your quality of life. And then there's the stuff that we don't characterise as diseases, things like frailty, things like, you know, cognitive decline, loss of memory that might not be bad enough to classify as dementia, but still gets in the way of your everyday life. There's hearing loss that means you can't, you know, hear what's going on around the dinner table. You might find it harder to cross the road because you can't hear the traffic and so on and so on. There's just this absolute, you know, enormous pile of causes of suffering that the ageing process is behind. And so by treating that, we can potentially defer, you know, we we can potentially defer this whole, uh, gamma of different age-related changes, almost all of which are negative. And I think if that was understood by a much wider variety of people, by the public, by policymakers, then suddenly that would mean that we would start funding this in proportion to its level of importance. To give the example of the US, in the US, you spend over $4 trillion a year on healthcare. That's not $4 billion, $4 trillion, so four with 12 zeros after it. And yet the amount of money that's spent by the National Institute on Aging, which is their research body that funds aging research, is about $3.5 billion. That's a factor of over 1000 smaller. And in fact, if you drill down into the aspect of that that's actually looking at the aging process itself, that's another factor of 10 smaller again. So it's probable that in the US you're spending less than one ten-thousandth the amount that is spent on healthcare on actually researching the single largest cause of those healthcare-related costs. So even from a purely economic standpoint, this makes absolutely no sense. I've already made the case that it's this enormous humanitarian crisis. So I really hope that this is just something that's much more widely understood by you know everyone, uh, whether you're chatting in a bar or whether you're making policy in Washington. I want everyone to understand the aging process and something that we can and should treat. This is the biggest revolution that we're going to see in the history of medicine and it's something that we all need to get on right now.
0: If you could know the answer... Surefire answer to one question that you have or one question that you're trying to find the answer for right now with regard to aging, curing aging, aging research. What question would you want answered?
1: That is a truly fascinating question. And I think actually I might dodge it slightly in the sense that in the book, I talk about these 10 hallmarks of aging. And I don't think that curing any single one of those is going to be a magic bullet. And actually, that invites the question that I think I would most like to answer. I'd like to understand the relationships between these hallmarks, how they all tie together, because we know there are certain connections between them. We, you know, we're already starting to join the dots. But if we fully understood how all of these things interact, and of course, whether there are any more of them that we've missed, then we'd have a really, truly holistic understanding of the aging process, and we could start to intervene in much more intelligent ways that I think would have you know incredible benefits for human health.
0: Final question, Andrew. When will we have a cure for aging?
1: That is a very tough one again. And I think that actually it's it's sort of a misleading question in the sense that when you say when will we have a cure, you imagine that, you know, I'm going to say in 25 years time, there will be a pill that we can all pop and it's going to stop us aging from that point onwards. But actually a cure for aging isn't going to arrive as a single sort of flash of genius to some scientist somewhere who's going to develop a pill. It's going to be a step by step process. It might be that, you know, you're in your 40s now and you live a few more years, and we find out that this metformin works to improve uh, human life and health span. And you 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 do your exercise, you follow all the basic health advice, you manage to live a few more years still. That means you're easily gonna live into your 80s, you might even live a little bit longer. And that gives a huge amount of time for more medicine to be developed. These things like gene therapy and stem cell therapy, which can sound quite futuristic now, they're only decades away, they're not hundreds and hundreds of years away. So if we get lucky, if the first few rounds of anti-aging treatment work and can be rolled out, you could gain a few more years of life, that gives you more years for those treatments be developed i'm not necessarily saying it's going to happen this generation but the way that a cure for aging will look is this gradual incremental progress that conspires to make it that human life expectancy is extending by more than one year per year. So rather than the three months a year we're currently getting in terms of increasing life expectancy, our funerals will be accelerating into the future faster than we're chasing them. So like I say, I'm not going to uh, you know, tie myself down and say our generation is going to be the last mortal generation or anything like that. But I really do feel that this is going to happen soon enough to matter for almost everybody alive today. Even if you're older, you know, you're going to be looking at the first few anti-aging drugs. If you're younger and you're lucky enough to live for a long time in good health, you've got decades and decades of this progress to happen so my sort of catch-all if slightly question dodging answer is to say this is going to happen in time for huge numbers of people who are currently alive so it's hugely relevant this isn't some far future sci-fi this is happening now and it's going to affect you and the people that you love
0: Yeah, you say you dodged the question but i think he gave a pretty good answer there he is <laughs> oh, andrew steel he is the author of ageless the new science of getting older without getting old Andrew, I have a feeling that years, decades from now, as we gain a better grasp on this process of aging and how to perhaps cure it, people will look back at your book as another one of those hallmarks in helping us to better understand things and also to help get the word out as well. So thank you very much for the time today and thank you for this wonderfully important book.
1: Thank you very much. And that's exactly why I wrote it. So I'm so glad that's how you feel about it.
0: And thanks to you for listening. A reminder to check out booksonpod.com to hear all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.